you so much, and we thank you for this incredible day that you've given us. We thank you that you are a God who invites us to know you. I pray that you would be with us, direct us, open our hearts towards you today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. From September of 1940 to May of 1941, Nazi Germany took up a bombing campaign against London during World War II that came to be known as the Blitz. Month after month, night after night, they dropped bombs on London and other key cities in the area. France had fallen, it was under German control, and now the fight had moved to Great Britain. Buildings were destroyed, and they estimate somewhere around 43,000 civilians were killed during this time. Families were separated, nightly blackouts were the norm, and during this incredibly hard, tumultuous time, a man named C.S. Lewis was asked by the BBC to give a series of talks over the radio about the Christian faith. So every evening, people would turn their radios on and they'd hear the updated news about the bombings and the destructions, and into this space spoke the voice of C.S. Lewis. One writer talked about it this way, speaking with no authority but that of experience as a layman and former atheist, C.S. Lewis told his radio audience that he had been selected for the job of describing Christianity to a new generation precisely because he was not a specialist, but an amateur and a beginner, not an old hand. And his goal in these talks was to help us see Christianity with a fresh set of eyes, that it was a radical faith whose followers might be uh, compared to an underground group who had gathered in a war zone, a place where it seemed like every single day, evil was just about to win. And into this space, Lewis spoke about hope and faith and humanity. He talked about hope and the idea that there's no ordinary people. He said it is immortals that we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. And he wanted really to communicate the idea that the great religious struggle, it wasn't fought on some spectacular battleground, but within each and every one of our ordinary human hearts. When every morning we wake up and feel the pressures of the day crowding in on us, and we must decide what sort of immortals we choose to be. He said how monotonously alike all the great tyrants and conquerors have been, how gloriously different the saints. And these series of talks came to be collected into one volume, and they're the book that we have today called Mere Christianity. And what they've done is they've gathered every one of these talks that he gave over the radio. There's four main ideas, and we're going to study these together to help us understand what Lewis was speaking about, connecting to God and understanding him better. He has four major ideas. The first is right and wrong is the clue to the meaning of the universe. The second is what Christians believe. The third is on Christian behavior. And the fourth is the idea of God as a trinity. And we're going to study these ideas together as we come to look at Christianity in the same way with fresh eyes and what God wants to speak into our lives today. We have books that are available. If you're online, there's a link you can click on. If you're here in the campuses, we have them available for you. It is a great time to plug in. We're going to have life groups that are talking about this. We're going to watch some cool videos with some extra resources. If you'd love to get connected to a group, this is a great time plug in, and we're going to study and challenge each other with these ideas a little bit further. 
And today we're going to start right at the beginning. If you open a Bible, anybody who opens a Bible and you go to the first book, Genesis, the very first verse, the very first chapter, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's easy to kind of just, that's the beginning of the Bible, we've heard it, we know it, and we miss over the grandiosity, the huge claim that's being made right at the very beginning on the first page. So I want to look at this verse, and there's three big ideas that we understand just from the very first verse in the very first chapter. And the first idea is this, in the beginning. There's a writer named Bill Bryson, and he says this so wonderfully. He said, from nothing our universe began. In a single blinding pulse, a moment of glory, much too swift and expansive for any form of words, the singularity assumes heavenly dimensions, space beyond conception. The first lively second, a second that many cosmologists will devote lifetimes to shaving into ever finer wafers, produces gravity and the other forces that govern physics. In less than a minute, the universe is a million billion miles across, growing fast. There's a lot of heat, 10 billion degrees of it, enough to begin the nuclear reactions that create the lighter elements, principally hydrogen, helium, with a dash, about one atom in 100 million of lithium. In three minutes, 98% of all the matter there is or ever has been will be produced. We have a universe. It is a place of the most wondrous and gratifying possibility and beautiful too. It was all done in about the time it takes to make a sandwich. In the beginning, this beautiful expanse, this beautiful universe, all of the functions necessary for life came to be. And the physicist Sir John Hofton brought up, he said, for human beings to exist, it can be argued the whole universe is needed. It needs to be old enough and therefore large enough for one generation of stars to have evolved and died, to produce the heavy elements, and then for there to be enough time for a second generation star like our sun to form with its systems of planets. Finally, there have to be the right conditions on Earth for life to develop, survive, and flourish. But that's not all. Our current understanding is that for the universe to develop in the right way, incredibly precise fine-tuning has been required in its basic structure and in the conditions at the time of what scientists have come to call the Big Bang. We have this agreement that there is this moment where we came into being. There was old ways of thinking that said the universe has always existed, it was eternal, but now what we've discovered is there's this precise moment in the beginning that God created the heavens and the earth. And it's interesting because this concept helps us understand there's not a fight between science and God. You don't have to choose one to believe in the other or dismiss one to have any faith in the other. They offer up different kinds of explanations. God and the Big Bang, right? God's creatural agency is one, and the other is the terms of mechanisms and laws. And I love that this idea, the term the Big Bang, is essentially what they say, a label put on a fascinating mystery. It's an idea that's used by scientists to express their belief that the universe, space and time, has a beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the scientist Francis Collins says, we have this very solid conclusion that the universe had an origin, the Big Bang. 15 billion years ago, the universe began with an unimaginably bright flash of energy from this infinitesimally small point that implies before that there was nothing. 
I can't imagine how nature, in this case the universe, could have created itself. And the very first fact that the universe had a beginning implies that someone was able to begin it. And it seems to me that had to be outside of nature. His point is, if we have a beginning, then behind the beginning, we have somebody who was able to bring this beginning about. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's so interesting for us to think about this idea from God as a whole and science as we understand it. John Lennox is a professor of mathematics at the University of Oxford, and he wrote this really incredibly smart book. It's called The Seven Days That Divide the World. And he talks about the ideas of Bible and science. And he references Stephen Jay Gould, who is an American paleontologist at Harvard. And Gould says that science and religion belong to separate domains, that they should be considered separate, that they deal with fundamentally distinct questions and harmony can only be achieved if you keep them separate. He calls it NOMA, non-overlapping magisteria. But Lennox says we find two snags when we think about it this way. The first is when we think about science and religion as separate, it underlies, it hides this underlying belief that one deals with truth and one deals with fantasy. That somehow science is based in reality and truth and religion is based in make-believe and fantasy. And he said the other snag is you really can't keep them apart because they do deal with similar ideas. They talk about some of the same things, the origin of universe and life, and in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and we go on to see what God created, and he creates man and woman in his own image. And these statements, these ideas, talk about the physical universe and the status of human beings within them. So saying that we can't keep them completely separate doesn't mean that the Bible becomes this uh, scientific treatise on Newton's laws and Einstein's equations and what the chemical compositions of certain elements are. That's not what we go for there. One of the things that God encourages us to do is use these brilliant minds he's given us to think about the wonderful world in which we find ourselves. God gave us agency and thought to think through how this wonderful work, world works. Yes, they overlap, but then they do work in different areas that answer different questions. Science can't tell us why did the universe come into being. It can talk about how it came into being, but not the why behind it. It can't tell us the meaning of our human existence or what happens to us when we die. But God gave us these lovely, inquiring minds to think through the ideas of this world in which we find ourselves. The idea of science is constantly changing and growing and learning and developing. And we get access to what God wants us to know in his beautiful worlds. One of the most beautiful things about Genesis is it's accessible. You don't have to have a degree in paleontology or biology to be able to read the beginning chapter of Genesis and understand that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You don't have to have a scientific literate degree to be able to understand that there was nothing and then there was something and then behind that something, God ushered in this creative work. If we can learn from this beautiful world that God has given us, we can learn about him as creator. It is in our best interest to use these wonderful minds that God gave us.
if God put the universe there, if God made all of these fine-tuned things work together, it would be strange to find ourselves with no interest in it. There was a beginning when all things came to be. But in the beginning, the second idea that we have to look at here is God. In the beginning, God was present. He was not himself created. He is the creator. At the beginning of our time, our history, our space, our understanding of life, God already existed. And again, John Lennox says, one of the most basic big questions we can ask is what is the nature, the ultimate nature of reality? And when we talk about our faith and our view as what we believe about God, right at the center of our worldview is, in the beginning, God. And Genesis is making this huge statement, there is a God, and he existed before anything else. Everything came about because of him. We have scientific evidence for a beginning, but not even science can comprehend the nature of the beginning. And at the core of who we are and how we think about life in God is this understanding of God being eternal and uncreated. Now, on the other hand, we are created. The universe that we live in came to be. It was not always there. God is primary. The universe is derivative. God came first, everything else from him. God was there at the beginning, and he will be there at the end. He is the God of the beginning. So if in the beginning, God, we have to look at what God did. In the beginning, God created. He created the heavens and the earth. And all of Genesis is this beautiful, poetic expression of what did God create? What are the functions that he put into this world for the foundations of life? Now, the Hebrew word for create here, it shows up about 50 times in the Old Testament. But what's really, really interesting about this is it is always connected to the idea of deity. It is a divine activity. It's not something I can do or you can do, but only something that God can do. The universe wasn't put together by chance. I love John Calvin says it was a supreme architect who designed and created everything that we have. The theologian Thomas Oden says, history begins with creation. The creatures that God thought important enough to create, this unpurchasable gift of living, life is given to us prior to any choice of our own. The gift of life precedes all other gifts. Not anything lives without first being given that life. No creature got here by choosing to be alive, right? Like nobody says, well, I want to be alive now, and we just live. We are given life. We are gifted life. The inanimate cannot choose to be animate. The non-existent can't choose to exist. And our creation understanding sets the scene, and it gives us the context in which God's purpose begins to work out in history in which God reveals himself to us and how we come to know him. That one of the most primal things we understand about our world, it is radically dependent on the generosity, the wisdom, the help of God who is good and powerful. In the beginning, God created everything. 
There was no function, no ordered system before God spoke it into creation. And in creation, we see the unfolding of the basis for time and weather and food and these foundations of life that we need to survive. Then these foundations become filled with plants and animals and human beings. We understand the question, why is there something instead of nothing? Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When there was nothing, God spoke everything that we know into being. Let me give you another way of thinking about this. Andrew Parker, who's a research director at the Natural History Museum in London, he um, was doing work on the origin of the eye, and people kept writing to him and saying, the stuff that you're talking about, you need to read Genesis 1. You need to read it. You're going to see some connections about what you're talking about. Listen to what he said. Without expecting to find anything, he's uh, not at all a professed believer in God. He said, without expecting to find anything, I discovered a whole series of parallels between the creation story on the Bible's first page and the modern scientific account of life's history. This at least made me think the congruence was almost exact. The more detail is examined, the more convincing and remarkable I believe the parallels become. One question I'll be asking in this book is this, could it be that the creation account on page one of Genesis was written as it is because that is how the sequence of events really happened? He says, here is the Genesis enigma. The opening page of Genesis is scientifically accurate but written long before the science was known. How did the writer of this page come to write this creation account? I must admit, rather nervously, as a scientist averse to entertaining such an idea, that the evidence that the writer of the opening page of the Bible was divinely inspired is strong. I have never before encountered such powerful, impartial evidence that the Bible is the product of divine inspiration. He's saying he read this account not expecting to find anything, and instead what he learned challenged him and his view of the Bible. And what this all gets to is this clue that we have to the, mun the universe and the meaning of everything in it. There is a God who at the beginning created everything. Now here's what C.S. Lewis does with this idea. Now that you've got all of these big creation, science, huge facts in your mind, C.S. Lewis wants to make this really, really personal in a way that we can understand. He said, really, we have two ways of understanding the universe. You can either look at it from the materialistic view that it just happens to exist. Matter and space are there. They've always existed. Nobody knows why. Um, the things that happen in very specific, fixed ways, they just kind of, by a fluke, happen that way. Or we have this view that we find from Genesis, he calls it the religious view, that there is something behind the creation of the universe. It's conscious, it has preferences, it, it prefers one thing to another, it made the universe. And we want to know whether the universe simply happens to be what it is for no reason, or there is a power behind it that makes it what it is. And listen to what he said. If there is a controlling power outside the universe, it could not show itself to us as one of the facts inside the universe. No more than the architect of a house could actually be a wall or a staircase or a fireplace in the house. The only way in which we could expect it to show itself would be inside of ourselves as an influence or a command trying to get us to behave a certain way. 
And here is where Lewis makes his point. I did it backwards. He actually started here and went to creation, but I wanted to start with creation and work our way out. He says, imagine the last time that you had an argument or you saw somebody having an argument. Now just strip aside all the details because we fight about different things. At the core of the argument is this. There's one person fighting with another person. Both of them think that they are right and are trying to convince the other person that they're wrong, right? So you got in a fight with somebody in your family and they're trying to convince you they're right and you're wrong and you're right and they're wrong and you go back and forth, right? Or you see somebody fighting, they're saying, it isn't fair, it's not supposed to be that way, they shouldn't have done that. Or it's only fair, I did it for you, now it's your turn, you have to do it. Any fight at its core is based in somebody is wrong and somebody's trying to convince them of that fact. Lewis says there would be no sense in trying to do that unless you and the other person had some sort of agreement as to what right and wrong are. He calls it the law of nature, the moral law, the law of our human nature. And he says, just as all the bodies are governed by biological laws, so the creature man has his law. Now, we can't choose if we're going to follow the law of gravitation. We have to. It's, it's as fixed how the world works. But we can choose to obey or disobey the law of human nature. Remember the context. He's writing this in. He's speaking these words to a country that is very much at war, to a country that has feels the presence of evil pushing in on them day after day. He says, what was the sense in saying the enemy were in the wrong unless right is a real thing which the Nazis at bottom knew as well as we did and ought to have practiced? If they had no notion of what we meant by right, then though we might still have had to fight them, we could have no more blamed them for that than the color of their hair. He's saying there's something in us that believes in a real right and a real wrong. And sometimes we get mistaken about what the right and wrong are. Sometimes we might disagree about the right and wrong. But just like sometimes we get our math problems and we do our multiplications wrong, they're not a matter of taste and opinion. They are there. And if we agree that there is something in us telling us that some things are right and some things are wrong, right? There are some things you don't have to argue with people. They know it's right, wrong. Murdering people is wrong. Stealing, lying, cheating. We can all make cases for gray, but violence and oppression, we know there are things that are wrong. But he says we also know this. In ourselves, we have failed to practice the kind of behavior that we expect from other people. We know that there are things that are right and wrong, but we know we also fall short in always doing the right thing. We don't do the thing we said we would do. We don't keep our end of the bargain. We aren't as kind and patient with other people as we expect them to be with us, right? Somebody else mess up and you wanna like throw the full force of the law at them. But when you mess up, it's like, whoa, 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 hold on, you don't understand. There was exceptions, right? There was a reason. If somebody else is speeding and being a jerk, I want them to get pulled over. If I'm speeding and being a jerk, I have like a list of reasons about where I have to be and why it's important, right? We realize we don't live up to the standard, the kind of behavior that we expect from others. We lie, we cheat, we steal. We know there is a way we ought to behave, and yet we don't always behave in this way. Timothy Keller pulls it together this way. He says, we all act as if it is better to seek peace instead of war, to tell the truth instead of lying, to care and nurture rather than to destroy, 
We believe that these choices aren't pointless, that it matters which way we choose to live. Yet, if the cosmic bench is truly empty, there's no judge, there's no arbiter of right and wrong, then who says that one choice is better than the other? We can argue about it, but he says it's pointless arguing, endless litigation. If there's, no, if there's nobody at the bench, there's no judge, there's nobody saying this is right and this is wrong, he says then the whole span of human civilization, even if it lasts a few million years, will be just as an infinitesimally brief spark in the relation to the oceans of dead time that preceded it and will follow it. There will be no one around to remember it. Whether we're loving or cruel in the end would make no difference at all. If there is no God, he says, then there's no one action, nobody to say any one action is moral or another immoral, but only, I like this, it should be this way, I want it to be this way. If there's no truth, if there's only, well, it's true for you, but it's not true for me. Well, my truth is relative, yours is different, I don't have to follow your truth. If that's the case, then who gets the right to put their subjective, arbitrary, moral feelings into law? If there's really no truth and we all get to choose for ourselves, then who says? Who says it's right? Who says it's wrong? He says if we say the majority has the right to make the law, right? Well, this majority in this culture thinks this is right, so we should follow along with that. Do we mean then that the majority has the right to vote to exterminate a minority? We would say, no, of course not, that's terrible. Yet, it's happened. In our history, it's happened. If we say, no, it's wrong, we're back to square one. Who says? Who says it's right? Who says it's wrong? If there is no God, then all moral statements are arbitrary. All moral valuations are subjective and internal, and there can be no external moral standard by which a person's feelings and values are judged. See, this puts us into a conundrum, which Lewis says is our clue to the meaning of the universe. If there is a God, and God created everything, then there's something inside of us, a law at work, to help us know him. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? In the very act of trying to prove that God didn't exist, that the whole reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there was no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know it was dark. Here's what he's getting at. If your brains are stretching, stay with me. History begins with creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if the, in the beginning, God intentionally, with purpose, created everything, you, I, this universe, the world that we live in, who then gets the ultimate say in what is right and wrong? Who gets the final say on what is just and unjust? The universe which has been created or the creator? 
if God created all of this, our world and everything in it, so that we could live and thrive and grow and learn and know him and have faith and ponder huge, hard ideas together, who then at the end gets to be the arbiter of what is right and what is wrong? Lewis says this thinking drives us to an understanding about God that is foundational to our faith and who he is. Now again, remember the context that he's writing in. Uh, a Russian cosmonaut returned from space sometime later reported he hadn't found God, right? We went up into the space thinking God might be there. C.S. Lewis responded, it was like Hamlet going into the attic of his castle and looking for Shakespeare. It's not how the world is created. If the God of the Bible really exists, he's not a man hiding in the attic, but he's the author and the creator of the play. And we're going to keep going in this. I have to wrap us up here, but I want you not to lose. I want you to hold on to this idea. God did more than just give us clues about who he is in this world that we live in. He wrote himself into the play. He wrote himself into the very story that he was telling that we might know him. And not only that we might know him, but know just how much he loves us and cares. When Christ stepped foot into the world, God became with us. That in Christ we might know the source of all hope. That our lives might have meaning and purpose. That we might understand we were created with intention and given value. No life is meaningless. The God who created all things, you, me, is also a God who wants to be known. And one more time from John Lennox, he said, God is not some distant deistic figure uninterested in his work. He regards its creation with enthusiasm and joy of a skillful artist who's delighted at what he has done as he sees it formed, organized step by step until the wonderful harmony of his completed work lies before him, thoroughly fit for the glorious purpose for which he intended it. We inherit a universe we didn't create. We didn't put the universe there. We didn't create the objects of which science has been studying. We study something that has been given for us, which leads us to, it is for the universe to shape our ideas about how it works rather than for us to decide in our heads how it ought to work and then force the universe to comply. This drives what we think about God. <laughs> this very simple statement, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, unpacks so many huge ideas about how we think about our life, our place in the grand scheme of things. And here's the challenge that I want us here today. Will we let God shape us and guide us on our ideas about how life works? who we should be in this world that he created and we've inherited? Will we open our hearts to the one who is creator of all things? Will we just open our minds to the idea, if God truly is the creator behind all things, then who gets to say what's right and what's wrong? Isn't it ultimately the one who created all things with us at heart? that we might live and flourish and live the very best lives that he created us for. 
Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would open up our minds and our hearts and challenge our thinking on these huge ideas about who you are. I pray that we would dig into our understanding of who you are and who you've created us to be. I pray, Father, that we would live sometimes in these harder tension moments that we can't wrap everything up in a nice bow, but we can learn and we can grow and we can see things in different ways. I pray that all of this resulting in our faith in you growing, our understanding of who we are and what we can do being larger than anything we've understood before. Help us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.